Well, let's continue in our study of the Scripture this morning. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, which we've just read. And I want to start off by asking you a question. What have you been disappointed by in your life? And how did you respond to that disappointment? What does disappointment reveal about you? This morning... The author, calling himself the preacher, probably Solomon, looks at these hard realities of life, and yet he refuses to blink. It's almost like he enters a staring contest with life itself and wins. Throughout the book, Solomon has been pinning our attention on topics that a lot of times we'd rather not think about. And he pushes us to conclusions that we'd rather not draw. Well, in our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes 9, the common thread throughout this whole chapter is disappointment. The author catalogs many different kinds of disappointment, and he considers many causes of disappointment. So here's a question for us to think about and keep in our head as we study this passage together. What should you do when nothing goes your way? What should you do when nothing goes your way? Now, throughout Ecclesiastes, just by way of review, we've seen that the author kind of has two speeds. You know, if you have a a stick shift, you know, you kind of can shift from one gear to the next to get a different speed. And one of the speeds that Solomon seems to use is observing the world and reflecting on everything that his eyes can see about this life under the sun. And he draws conclusions from what he sees. The other speed that he kind of shifts into sometimes is telling us what he knows to be true. Now, since God is the creator and the judge of all of us, sometimes he shifts between these speeds without any warning. Instead of presenting one seamless vision, Solomon sometimes puts these two speeds or these two pictures side by side. And he does that in this chapter. So... To see the structure of this chapter, you need to see how he introduces each section. So in verse 1, he says, All this I laid to heart, examining it all. Down in verse 11, again, he says, I saw. So he's going to be talking about things that he sees, observations again, under the sun. And under the sun is a phrase that's all over this passage. When we talk about under the sun, we're talking about life apart from God. Okay? Under the sun, life apart from God. Also notice in verse uh, 1 and verse uh, 12 that there are some bookends that help us to know the structure as well. He says at the end of verse 1, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Then look down in verse 12 again, and it says... For man does not know his time. 
In other words, Solomon is going to observe things again, and he's going to share with us. And some of these are going to be very repetitive. You guys know that as you're growing up, if your mom really wants you to get something, she doesn't just say it once. She says it again and again and again until you get it. And Solomon uses the same technique in his book. He says the same things over and over and over so that it sinks in, so that we get it. And that's certainly true again today. Some of these topics that he's going to bring up, his observations he's going to bring up, we've heard before. But he's going to put a little different spin on it each time. Something extra, something additional for us to learn every time we look at it. So he's observing life and then also he's telling us that we are incapable of understanding it all. Man does not know. So we're going to look at each of these sections this morning. I think there are three of them in our passage, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, or 7 to 10, and then verses 11 and 12. We're going to do verse 1 to 6 first, then we're going to skip to the end and do verses 11 and 12, and then at the end we're going to come back to verses 7 through 10, one of those places where he kind of switches gears without telling us. And uh, we'll follow his examination of life under the sun. And then we'll, we'll notice what comes from beyond the sun, or as, or as we like to say, under the S-O-N, life under the Lord. So again, here's the question we want to keep in our mind as we work through the passage this morning. What should you do when nothing seems to go your way? So remember that. Verses 1 through 6. Let's put this under the heading of death levels us. Death levels us. Now we see this leveling or flattening or bulldozing work of death in verses 1 to 6. Look again at these first three verses. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. In verse 1, the preacher asserts a biblical truth that God is sovereign over all things. But that doesn't seem to give him much comfort. When he says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, he's not saying that no one can ever be assured of God's love. Instead, he's reflecting on what life looks like and feels like down here, under the sun, apart from God. God is sovereign. He says that's true. The The end of that first sentence, the wise and their deeds, all of them are in the hands of God. But... You don't know whether the next day is going to feel like God's smile on you or God's frown on you. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that only good blessings 
are only ever going to come your way. Sometimes we like to think that we can engineer all of our desired outcomes. You know, work hard and you get a better job. Uh, Save and invest and you'll be financially secure. Um, Eat well and exercise and you'll have a long, healthy life. But to all this, the preacher says, you don't know that. You don't know that. Now, I don't think the preacher is against hard work or saving or exercise, but his point is there are no guarantees in this life except one, death. And the certainty of death guarantees that there are going to be no perfect distribution of rewards in this life. Righteous and wicked, evil and good, everybody suffers the same fate in the end. Everybody dies. So as far as this life is concerned, being righteous doesn't guarantee blessing. Work doesn't guarantee wealth. Diet and exercise doesn't guarantee health. And skill doesn't guarantee success. The preacher is not saying that we should like this. And he's not telling us, just resign yourself to your fate. Instead, he's mad about it. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. He's saying something's not right. Death is the stubbornest fact of all. But just as stubborn is our sense that death itself is wrong. It cuts down the young and the old, righteous and wicked, wise and foolish, without prejudice. We instinctively resist death. We wish it would go away and stay away. If you're not a Christian, think about this. If you're not a Christian, how do you explain these two facts? How do you explain that death is the stubbornest fact? Can't get rid of it. And the fact that we're just as stubbornly opposed to it. I mean, if we are just, if we, brothers and sisters, if we are just dust, simply warmed up to life for a little while by a cooling star 93 million miles away, then why do we feel like so much more than that? If death is simply a natural part of life, why does it feel so wrong? In this passage, the preacher doesn't give us the answers that those questions send us looking for, but he does say that there's something seriously wrong out there. And then continuing in verse 3, he also says there's something seriously wrong in here, in us. Also, the hearts, verse 3, of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What the preacher is saying about madness being in the heart 
is not just true of some people, but of all people. He's saying all people have messed up hearts by nature. He's saying that we longed for and we, we revere the wrong things. The, if we want to put it in layman terms here, is the factory default settings of our fallen nature are all messed up. That's true of every single one of us. We're sinners not just by choice, but by nature. Blaise Pascal was speaking about this. He said, certainly nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves, unquote. In other words, if you don't know that you're a sinner by nature, then you don't know yourself. Not really. The preacher goes on to report verses 4 through 6 on death's bulldozing work. Verse 4, he who is, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's because dogs were viewed back in that day as uh, scavengers. They weren't pets. They weren't to be desired. They roamed the streets. They were one of the worthless creatures in society. But a living dog Better than a dead lion. If you have life, you have hope. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 4 almost sounds encouraging, doesn't it? (laughs) Hope. Whoa, 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 wait. There's hope. Wait. Let's focus in on that. Until you realize that in verse 5, the reason he gives for why the living are better off is that they know they will die. Some advantage, huh? We have to remember, we have to keep telling ourselves that these, in these portions of Ecclesiastes, the author is limiting himself to what his eyes can see and what sense he can make of all of that. In these portions of Ecclesiastes, the author is asking the question, if this life is all there is, how can you be sure it's such a good thing? So in these verses, Ecclesiastes is showing us the limits of why merely human observation, what Solomon is doing, cannot tell us about the meaning of life. He comes right up to that cliff, as it were. And then instead of turning away from the cliff and going the other direction, he floors the gas and goes straight off the cliff. He shows us the absurdity of looking at life as if this is all that there is. Verse 6 says that in just a few years, all the things you love and hate and envy will be just as gone as you are. All those fires that are burning so hot in your life right now and your heart right now are going to be blown out, scattered to the wind with time. All those things that are so urgent, so pressing, so important are going to be gone just like we are. 
But what use is that to us here and now? When nothing goes our way, how is it any comfort to remember that death levels us? How does that not just add insult to injury? Well, I would suggest because it reminds you not to seek your reward here. Don't look for the perfect payment here. Don't seek full satisfaction from anything that your eyes can see. It'll fall short every time. Many of us walk through life with unexamined, tacit beliefs. In other words, we believe something, but we don't really know it. We say we believe something, but we don't really admit it to ourselves until something comes along and reveals it. Beliefs like this. If I do this, surely God will reward me with that. If I do this, certainly God will give me this. If I pray and read the Bible every day, surely he'll give me the spouse and kids that I want. If I show up and work hard on my job every day, surely I'll be first in line for that promotion. Death says, not so fast. Not so surely. If death itself comes for the good and evil alike, then don't count on getting everything you want in this life. Solomon says, don't count on getting everything you think you deserve. Death is a hard word. You know, whenever we try to speak on our own behalf, on our own defense, death speaks louder. Whatever mark we we think we want to try to leave, death just comes along and sweeps it away. I'm always reminded of that, you know, when the Academy Awards come every year and they have that little section in memoriam, you know, and they list all of those famous people that have given their whole lives for all of these great films and advancements and all kinds of things related to that industry. And they get like three seconds on the screen. And they're gone. But praise God, brothers and sisters, because... As hard a word as death is, it is not the last word. Death levels us, but Christ leveled death. Death is the just punishment for all of our sins, but Christ came to bear that punishment for all who would ever turn away from their sin and trust in Him. That's what he accomplishes through his death on the cross. Death rules over us like a tyrant. Christ came to liberate us from that tyrant. Death keeps us locked up like slaves to fear, anxiety. But Christ came to release us from death's dominion and power forever. That's what the author of Hebrews says over in chapter 2. 
beautiful verses, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, the, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ frees us. By his death, he frees us. And not only that, but on the third day, he rose from the grave, obliterating death's power forever. One day, God will swallow up death forever. Revelation tells us that one day there will be no more death. He's the only one who can rescue you from death's grip forever. He's the only one who can get rid of your sin forever. He's the only one who can give you more than death robs from you. He's the only one who can give you a reward that even death cannot touch. So don't seek your reward here, brothers and sisters. Seek it in heaven. Paul said this in Colossians 3, 23-24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Brothers and sisters, there is no certain reward here. No, no certain reward. But a certain reward is coming. And what is that reward ultimately? It is to know God and see God and be satisfied fully by God forever. When nothing goes your way, remember that death levels. It's a horrible observation. It's a morbid observation. But Christ leveled death. Christ leveled death. Notice number two, verses 11 and 12. We're going to skip over to verses 11 and 12. When nothing goes your way, secondly, remember that fortune mocks us. Fortune mocks us. We see this mockery in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 first. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, not, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The preacher is not saying that the race is never to the swift. In fact, nine out of ten times it probably is, right? Instead, he's saying it's not always to the swift. The swift might get hurt in the middle of the race, or they might get tricked in the middle of the race. His point is that skill doesn't guarantee success. And again, it goes to this illusion that we have sometimes that we are the masters of our fate. And, and, and despite that illusion that we have sometimes, our lives are subject to forces beyond our ability to control. And Solomon tells us what two of them are. Time and chance. You know, board games vary in how much they depend on skill versus chance. I hate this. Um, there, are, there are many perennial children's favorites, aren't there? 
that depend almost exclusively on chance, like uh, shoots and ladders or Candyland, right? Everything depends on drawing the right card or rolling the dice and having it land the right number again and again and again. The kids love it. The parents, maybe a little less. Maybe a little, maybe not so less. Then there are, of course, some board games where there is some chance, but there's also strategy and skill in different proportions. So what about life itself? What is the ratio of skill to chance, or as we sometimes say, luck? The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't give us an equation here. But he does say this. It's not what many of you think it is. It's not 100% skill and 0% chance. That's not the world in which you live. Verse 11 isn't saying don't even try or don't care or none of it matters. Instead, all that verse 11 is saying is you're not in control. And just as you're not in control of your life, neither are you in control of your death. Verse 12 again. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We all like to think that we're the captain of this massive vessel, our life. And we're plowing this razor-sharp course through all the swirling storms of life. But the truth is, according to Solomon, that we're more like the fish that gets caught in the ship's net. You do know that you will die, but you don't know when you will die. So the only wise way to live is to always be ready to die. Are you ready to face death this morning, brothers and sisters? As I mentioned in my prayer earlier, it came suddenly to a young lady this last week who knew Christ. Sure, that's not what she thought January would hold for her. If you're not ready to face death, why not? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, I want to challenge you. Don't take for granted that you can put work and money and and leisure and entertainment and relationships first and sort out your relationship with God later. For one thing, you don't know whether you get a later. Don't put career and relationships and finances before your relationship to God, I beg of you. Brothers and sisters of Heather Hills, every gathering of our church is like a dress rehearsal for the last day, isn't it? I've said this before. Which means that every time we come together, we're not only recentering our lives on God, we're also helping each other prepare to die. It's one reason that we often sing hymns about heaven. They help us to fix our eyes on our destination beyond death. 
and hymns about heaven train our hearts how to rightly view our own death. Death is an enemy, to be sure, but it is a defeated enemy. And it isn't the end, is it? Brothers and sisters, what should you do if you're not finally in control of how your life is going to turn out? Trust the one who is. From a human point of view, chance, luck, fate, it's an appropriate word when, someone, when something's cause is hidden from us. We can't give a reason of why things happened the way they did. But we know that ultimately God is sovereign over even the smallest, seemingly, seemingly most random events in our lives. It's a hard thing to understand, but the Bible says it's absolutely true. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. That's like sitting down at a board game and taking the dice and rolling it. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I mean, wrap your head around that. You play a, go home and play a game with your family today that involves dice. And take the dice and roll it. The number that came up on the dice is under the control of God. I mean, everything down to the smallest acts in our universe. Everything is under God's sovereignty. Even in Candyland. So, we should turn causes of anxiety into prompts for prayer. Turn causes of anxiety into prompts for prayer. Whatever weighs your heart down, Get it off of your chest, as we like to say, and into the everlasting arms. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this, It is our work to cast care, and it is God's work to take care. When nothing goes your way, remember, fortune mocks. But God is sovereign, wise, and good. You can trust him. Thirdly, finally, when nothing goes your way, verses 7 and 10, we'll back up there to the central part of this text. Remember, thirdly, that gifts abound. Gifts abound to us. We see these gifts back in verses 7 through 10 And I believe they form the main emphasis of this entire chapter. Now remember, as I said earlier, Solomon in in these verses here is kind of switching gears on us without telling us he's switching gears. he's, He's switching gears from observing life under the sun to now reminding us that all of the good things about life come to us from beyond the sun from the good hand of our wise and gracious and sovereign God. He's not talking about life as he sees it now. He's talking about life 
as God gives it. So this is a unique perspective. That's why I think it's the, it's the main part of this chapter. What gifts is he talking about? Well, these, vo- these verses focus on four, although it's not meant to be exhaustive. First in verse 7, food and drink. Let's look at these gifts. Food and drink. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now notice this is a command to enjoy. Go eat. Go drink. How can God command you to enjoy these gifts? Well, because he made them. And he provides them. And he says they're good. There's an element here in this, in this verse that harkens all the way back to Genesis where he says God has already approved what you do or long ago approved what you do. And it takes us back to the, to the garden where in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. And he put man and woman in this garden where there was abundance of goodness. And he approved. Remember, it was a super abundant yes. You can eat everything except that one tree. One solitary tree. God is always abundant in his gifts to us. If you make a meal for a table full of adult guests, they're likely to enjoy it and thank you very warmly for it and compliment you for your hospitality. If you make the same meal for a table full of, say, your own children, their reactions are likely to be more varied and less complimentary. I hope not. Which group of eaters honors the maker's meal more? Enjoying the maker's gifts glorifies the maker. You know, God didn't have to make us. And he didn't have to make us to need food. He made us because he's good. And he made us need food so that every single day we would taste his goodness. There was an Episcopal priest who was, a, who was also a chef. He wrote a book about food and God. And I'm not recommending it necessarily, but there's a quote from the, from the book that says this. Uh, is written by Robert Farrar Capon. He wrote this, Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. Isn't that interesting? Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. The second gift is clothing and health. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Commentary, a commentator, Sidney Gradanus, points out from the Bible that when people were distraught, particularly in the Old Testament, they wore sackcloth and ashes to show their grief. But white clothes to reflect the heat of the sun, and oil to protect and nourish the skin were were worn to show joy 
and happiness. The world, brothers and sisters, was meant to be a place of color and life and beauty. Enjoy life in these gifts, clothing and health. The third gift is marriage, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. By God's grace, I married Deborah when I was 19 years old. She's the wife of my youth in a literal sense. And she's one of God's greatest gifts to me. Remember that when Ecclesiastes says vain, we should hear that word as fleeting, ungraspable, soon gone, like smoke or mist. Think about this. Like every good gift under the sun, even the longest marriage is brief in comparison with eternity. So what should you do with something so good that will be gone so soon? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. We're not told, put up with your wife, but rather, enjoy life with your wife. Brothers, if you are too busy to enjoy the life you have together, then you are too busy. End of story. Whether you live with your husband or wife or roommates or other family members, do you enjoy the life God has given you and the people He's given you to enjoy it with? What would it look like for you to enjoy your life more for God's glory. The fourth gift is work. Verse 9 says, That is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. A portion is apportioned by someone like a host who serves you a big bowl of pasta. God is the host of your whole life. And He decides which dishes to give you, and how much of each. And one of the gifts he apportions to you, one of the dishes he serves to you, is work. That is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Again in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. One of the challenges of verse 10 is that here it comes again. (laughs) The dreary subject of death creeps into all of these joyful gifts that he's telling us about. You know, normally through Ecclesiastes, the preacher keeps his his secular, under-the-sun, gloomy observations in one stream, and his confessions of God's goodness as our creator in a totally separate stream. It's like there's kind of a freshwater stream and a saltwater stream. But here, streams are mixed. 
His motivation for you to work now is that there will be no work in the grave. And in one sense, that's true, right? No life, no labor. But ultimately, from the perspective of the Bible, under the S-O-N, we've talked about this before, we need to remember that nothing we do here is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.58 provides a reminder of that truth, right? And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why not? Because it results in an eternal reward. So what does verse 10 tell you to do? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever God has given you to do, do it. It's that simple. You can't do the job you wish you had. You can only do the jobs God has actually given you. So do them with the strength that He has given you. You're not finally responsible for what comes out of your work time. And chance happens to all, Ecclesiastes says. But you are responsible for what you put in. All work is a stewardship. God has given you your work. He expects you to give yourself to your work as a way of giving yourself to Him. And the test of your work ethic is in that little word, whatever. Whatever your hand finds to do. It's easy to be motivated by the fun parts of our job, isn't it? But what about the most tedious? What about the hardest? What about the most thankless? What about the third time in a row that your boss says, that's not quite right, do it again. What about the tenth load of laundry this week? Verse 10 reminds us that for all of its frustrations, work is a gift. All legitimate work is an expression of love for God and love for others. All honest work reflects God's character and it tends to His creation. All work, we might say, is covered in glory, no matter how faint that glory sometimes may seem. Food and drink, clothing and health, marriage, work, these are all good gifts from God. And this list is not meant to be exhaustive, by the way. One author I was reading expanded on this list. Other ways to enjoy the life has given us. Just listen to this for a second. Let your mind go crazy. Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Go to the theater. Learn to make music. Visit the sick. Care for the dying. Cook a meal. Feed the hungry. Watch a film. Read a book. Laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. Play football. Run a marathon. Snorkel in the ocean. Listen to Mozart. Call your parents. Write a letter. Play with your kids. Spend your money. Learn a language. Plant a church. Start a school. Speak about Christ to someone. Travel to somewhere you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your fortune and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. 
And your list could add to that, couldn't it? God's gifts are showered on us all around us. When nothing goes your way, remember that gifts abound and God wants you to enjoy them. I'm going to ask the praise team to return for our final song here. I know I'm going a little long. Bear with me just for another moment. I want to give you just a final important thought to close out this message. You may think, if I'm supposed to love and enjoy God first, right? Then how can I love life too? Especially since it's cursed, it's passing away, it's imperfect. How do I find the right balance? The truth is that these two concepts of loving God and loving life work together, not against each other. But one of the keys to enjoying all these good gifts is to not make them a bigger deal than they are. In the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you don't worship. Let me say that again. In the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. Natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. Each of these are gifts, not gods. If you treat them as gods, they'll become demons to you. So if you choose to worship work or worship sex or worship clothing or worship fill-in-the-blank, you will never be satisfied by it because you've perverted it. But when you worship God and trust Him and love Him and walk with Him, as one writer puts it, quote, we discover that God is like the host who welcomes us into His kingdom and to the most lavish of banquets for us to enjoy. His gifts on earth are meant to make us homesick for heaven precisely because they're so good. A foretaste of the heavenly banquet still to come, unquote. In a moment, we're going to stand. In fact, why don't we stand now? We're going to sing a song of thankfulness for the many good gifts of God. But the last verse that we'll sing goes like this. For thyself, best gift divine, to the world so freely given. For that great, great love of thine, peace on earth and joy in heaven. Brothers and sisters, set your heart on the greatest good thing. The good in all good things. God himself. Set your heart on him. Everything you enjoy in this life are good things, but they're, they're small good things. So enjoy the small 
good things of life while you have them. But remember, if you're in Christ, you have much bigger good things coming. Set your affections there. Set your worship there. And you will be able to enjoy all the good gifts God gives to you. Let's sing together.